From our New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the Vine Pair Podcast. And Zach, before we jump into our interview today, which I'm really excited about, I want to talk about, uh, I want to give an example of something that happened to me a few nights ago, sort of indicative of uh, something we've talked about in the office while you were here, uh, you know, a few weeks ago. So, you know, we were chatting about like how sort of, I think one of the biggest issues we're seeing in sort of like the wine community coming up is that there's a sort of a, a resistance to knowledge, if you will. So, um, so I was at this wine bar a few nights ago with Naomi and the, the guy comes out he's really excited. You know, it's one of these wine bars where like, they don't have a list. The entire list is written on a mirror, you know, and he's like, and it's all a certain style of wine. Right. Uh And he comes out and he's like, you know, these wines are really hard to get into. So like, I'm happy to bring them by the table and like, I'll pour you a bunch. Cause like, you know, th- you got to get with the funk. That's literally what he says to me. Okay. So I'm like, okay. But I was like, I want to come in and look at the list anyway. So I come in and like, I see some, some wineries I recognize. Like I see Brock sellers and other stuff. And he has, they have a wine from Kaur. And so I'm talking to the guy and the guy's already told, like talked to me in a way that like makes me think he knows something about wine. And so I said, oh, so is this a natural wine with Malbec? Because from Gore. He's like, yep. oh, I don't know, man. I don't know what the grape is. I was like, oh, wait, what? So like we're, we're at a wine bar and I asked you about a region of which the grape has to be Malbec. Yeah. And you didn't know. That was a, that was a layup. Yeah. Uh, so, so then somehow. I said to him, so then I said to him, oh, so like, you know, what do you, what do you read? Like, how do you learn about wine? Et cetera. And he goes, oh, I'm really anti knowledge he literally says to me i like it to come to me i believe that like it should flow through that i should just like pick up what i pick up i'm not like i know people right now listening to this thinking that i'm full of shit and that i'm making this all up i promise you i'm not right it was just so weird it was this like idea of like no man like knowledge is for suckers like studying is for suckers and i'm not trying to say that like I think people who are into this style of wine are like that. I don't, but I do think that there is with some of these more casual places. Now this, I guess, attitude that that's like, who gives a shit, which I understand because we're trying to rebel against the idea that like, if you, if you had knowledge, you had the power. And if you didn't have knowledge, you didn't have the power, but it was just really crazy. So like, I'm just asking you a question about what the grape is and saying, making a comment of like, this is weird. It's a natural wine, like a Malbec natural wine from France. And you didn't know and told me it was kind of stupid that I did. It was just weird. It was super weird. So, so I have two thoughts. The first one is like, he was the manager, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) It's especially weird because, like, the you weren't talking about like an obscure variety that no one had ever heard of. It wasn't like, oh, this is Romorantine, and like, yeah, I'm not going to even, I don't know it, or like, you're not going to know it, so why am I even bothering? Right. People know what Malbec is, and people in this country mostly, even I'm thinking those really kind of trendy, whatever anti-knowledge wine bars are, um, are are still interested in what the variety or varieties in their, in their wine are. The second thing I'll say is I, I'm just going to, I'm just going to go on a limb here and say that what you have described is a, a very New York experience. Um, and so if you want to, oh, you want to, you want to talk one up on the York. Seattle thanks, side of the, of the ledger here, I don't think you would have that experience here. You might be able to find it. You never know. There's, there's, a, there's, there's that, there's that attitude just about everywhere in this country, but, uh, but, but a little less of it here, I think. It was just really weird. Yeah, it was really weird because, like, I, I, I didn't, I didn't get it. Like, he didn't want to talk about the wine. He was like, he was like, "Yo, why don't?" I mean, and I guess in a lot of places, I might have responded well to that. He just like wanted to bring out like four or five bottles and just pour them for us. But you know, when we tried to chat about it, 
he did not want to chat about them. He's like, I just want to see what you vibe on based on taste. And like, I'm sure that's a sales tactic that works like really well, but no one learns anything that way. So like, I, like he would have, like he, if he just saw what I vibed on based on taste, he might've never told me about the wine. And then I never would have been able to go and buy it somewhere else. Or like, think, yeah. oh, wow, I realized that I really like natural wines from Core. I don't think I would have, but I'm just saying, you know what I mean? Whereas he did pour this really interesting Chenin Blanc that was a natural wine that was really delicious. I mean, it just tasted like fruit juice, but it was what I wanted at the time. Yeah. So I have a quick question about yeah. this because I'm curious. So in this sort of circumstance, like to me, what I what I see as like, you know, the sort of the trait of someone who is good at that kind of job, whether they're a sommelier, they run a wine bar, they do whatever, they work in, in beverage service is that part of that skill set is not having to pour you the entire lineup of wines that are available to find you one that you like. Yes. Now, obviously, part of that is, you know, what is the selection? And, and I understand a little bit the like, hey, if you're not super familiar with this style of wine, maybe you're not going to like most of these. But I feel like someone who's reasonably good at that job should be able to ask you like, hey, what do you like to drink? What are you in the mood for? Like, are you looking for something that's just like, you know, really sort of boozy fruit juice? Or do you want something that's really like you know, funky and fucked up or like, or what? And to sort of just say like, I can't, the only way for me to to find a wine for you is to let you try all of them and then decide. Like it does sort of, it sort of, besides the sort of anti-knowledge stance, like it kind of, it sort of gets at me because I'm like, this is like, that's not how this job should be done. You know, we don't let people come into the restaurant and say like, you know, oh, well, what are you in the mood for? Well, here, let me bring you a taste of everything that's on the menu. And you just decide what tastes best to you today. Totally. Like, that's not how it works. Like we have menus for a reason and we assume that we can, as service professionals, communicate with our guests in a way that allows us to recognize the sort of clues that they're giving us to figure out, okay, maybe we have to bring them two wines to taste. We can't necessarily know exactly what they're in the mood for because they may themselves not know totally. But to just say like, here's all the wine we have, pick one. Is <laughs> here's like, what I'm vibing on right now. It was very funny. I yeah. feel like I was like maybe like at a, like at a, you know, a Cali, like, uh, but with a bud tender, you know, it's like, yo, let me show you all the buds that I'm feeling right now. And you just tell me what kind of high you want. You know what I mean? Like, that's what it felt like. And I was like, oh yeah, like we're going there anyways. So that was, that was what I wanted to chat about, but let's get right into it today. So I'm really lucky that, uh, we have Matt, the head winemaker of Chateau Montalena, which, I mean, if you don't know Chateau Montalena, watch, uh, Bottle Shock. Right, our two-hour commercial. You should read my piece on Vine Pair about Chateau Montalena. Is really it was excellent. Thank you. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, so so Matt, welcome. Thank you for joining us. No, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And so you know, we're we're chatting about a bunch of stuff today, but I wanted to sort of just get in right away with sort of talk to us about like so Napa. I think has an intimidating vibe to some people. There are some people in the country that think it is now irrelevant, right? There are other people in the country who think it is still the most important wine region in the country. So, like, what's happening in Napa right now, and why should we still give a shit? First off, thanks for teaching me about what a bud tender is. I have no idea what that was. Um, Yeah, so Napa's Napa's a pretty amazing place. It's still, I'd say, it's still the major leagues. You know, we still attract, I like to think, the, the top talent in, you know, grape growing, winemaking, hospitality. Uh, There certainly doesn't seem to be any slowdown of that stampede out to see us, but there is really something magical about the Valley. It's probably the easiest place to grow vinifera. 
So it gives us the most flexibility in terms of being able to come up with new ideas. And there's, you know, there's no doubt there's a lot of capital there too. And there are a lot of people who don't care about making money. I don't happen to work for one of those brands. Like we obviously, <laughs> like if you don't know, Monolay does not have any like tech money or oil right. money behind us. <laughs> okay. But, but that, there's a lot of that. There is a lot of that. And so it's, I think it's, it's a really important part of anyone's wine cellar and wine education. Napa has a special place there because they're really, there's no other region that rivals our, like the styles, the stylistic diversity that comes out of Napa. Well, so wait, so why is it so important? Like why, why should, so you, I mean, you're saying, okay, it's important for me to have in my cellar, but like, sure. why? Sure. So, I mean, you know, I think you can look back at, I think maybe they have to start with this is on like the historical side. So, I mean, we're a relatively young wine industry in general in America, mm-hmm. right? Like we lost a entire generation, maybe two generations of knowledge after prohibition. And if you look at where um, kind of like the cradle of premium winemaking began again in California, it definitely started in Napa. And it was a, you know, it was a happy consequence of a number of different things. But I think over the years, as we've gotten better at understanding uh, this like wonderful piece of ground that we have, we've realized that the combination of what's going on below ground, what's going on above ground in, you know, the air, the weather, everything else, Plus, um, you know, the willingness and the means to really push uh, the, um, the development and perfection of our product. There aren't a whole lot of other industries that are as comfortable in their own skin or regions that are as comfortable in their own skin and are as comfortable with. Um, it's, it sounds like funny now to say it because most people think of Napa wines as like com- completely homogenous. But there are those of us still who are still who are still trying to get better every year. Right. And um, you just when it comes to like the purest expression of like sight and variety with, you know, the latest in, in science, but also like a healthy dose of heritage and tradition, there isn't any other region in the U S that comes close to it. So I, I have think. a, I have a question, Matt, which is, you know, you work at, you know, as we alluded to at the beginning or mentioned at the beginning, you know, a very prestigious, uh, highly regarded and hugely influential winery in, uh, Napa's history. Um, and as we talked about, the Judgment of Paris of uh, 1976 obviously was a huge moment for the for the Valley as a whole, but obviously for Chateau Montalena um, in particular. Is it is it hard sometimes working with a brand with or working for a winery with that kind of legacy and that kind of reputation? You know, obviously anywhere you go work in Napa, there's consequences in terms of like you know whether it's uh, someone very wealthy who's put their money behind it or just it's a it's a you know it's an expensive place to make wine and if you fuck up, there's a lot of consequences. But like you're dealing with something that is you know like a wine that's literally in the Smithsonian. Is that like how does that not to not to like ask you if this freaks you out from time to time? But if it were me, I would be like I can't like the the eyes of the world are on us still you know we're still this iconic winery like i i can't just like make some half rate shit and pass it off cuz like yeah you know who's really paying attention that, no, that's another good question i think it really comes down to perspective i think there's certainly some older brands that have been around for a while and we all know them who are basically mailing it in that are living off of that legacy no 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 who shocking who? right yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> But uh, one thing, you know, my boss, Bo Barrett and his dad, Jim, I think really fostered, and I don't know if they did this intentionally or not, uh, but there is this, um, there's this really, uh, I don't know, uh, contagious culture of just like creativity and freedom uh, working at Montalena. Like you wouldn't get it looking at our very, you know, iconic label where we look like we all wear ascots around during the day. 
but uh, either through you know a specific choice or maybe even like bordering on neglect, they've really cultured this or built this whole idea and system where we we essentially have like I have two requirements when I make our wine. The first one is it has to be delicious. And I think, you know, Adam, you and I have talked about this. There are a lot of very interesting wines that aren't delicious. Yes. And then the wines also have to age. All of the other stylistic parameters are pretty much up in the air. And so that when you when you start thinking about that, it's very liberating, but it can also be incredibly intimidating at the same time. Um, it's, it's liberating in that I know I'm not trying to recreate the wines from the 70s and 80s. I don't have to and I don't really want to. Um, but on the other hand, to your point, uh, Zach, is that there is like a very high standard that people expect of us. I mean, the other piece of it is like I and this is going to sound terrible, but like hear me out on it. I really don't care what people think about our wines. Right. It's to us is we're confident enough in what we do to say this is what we want to produce. This is what we like to drink. This is this fits with all of our values and what we believe is the highest, best expression of what we're doing. And if you like it, great. If you don't, there are 700 other wineries just on the North Coast. I would love to have you as a customer. So I mean, so are you guys then I would from from that comment, I would make the conclusion you guys aren't chasing scores. No. But a lot of Napa wineries do. Yeah. So what I'm curious about is like, where is that coming from in Napa? Because you guys, so you're one of the few wineries that really put the region on the map Mm -hmm. with with the judgment of Paris, right? But now there are these wineries that like are so cult Mm -hmm. that I'll probably never drink them in my lifetime. How did that, how did that happen in Napa? And how were you guys not a part of it? You know, like how did you even prevent yourselves from not becoming a part of it? Because the way I look at it uh, from a business perspective, if I'm one of the wineries that basically made Napa famous, why don't I have a thousand dollar bottle at this point? Like be the next, be the Lafitte of Napa or be the DRC of Napa, as opposed to a screaming Eagle that kind of came out of nowhere. And I've always wondered how the hell that happened and uh, why there is that audience besides, I guess, money. Well, and to your point about that, there's a whole generation, I think, of people under 45 who've never tasted a first growth out of Bordeaux and and probably never will. And you have to ask yourself as to what, you know, is that a good business model or is that a sustainable business model for them? I mean, I would argue that it's probably not. So with with cold wines, I mean, it's it's no secret if you're shooting for scores how to get them. I mean, I think we, we can all stipulate that certain um like very high scoring one and we get good scores i mean but i mean it's if you want to make the 100 point wine from a grape growing and wine making side like we know how to do it and there are some people and who for them there is no other better product than a 100 point wine i think also those wines don't get consumed very frequently and I, i think maybe to answer your question a little bit better, you know, wine is still a beverage for us. We still like drink our own wine. And there are a lot of these cult wines that are either too expensive to drink, or frankly, they just don't taste very good. They're not very enjoyable. And I remember when we had lunch last time, I mean, we sat there, had lunch, we drank wine and we went through like most of the bottles. Like we got through them and they go down easy. I mean, they're, they're delicious. They go well with food. And that's always been a important part of how we make our wines is, you know, do you want a second glass? Do you want to finish the bottle? And we always understood from the beginning too that, you know, we're selling wine to people for enjoyment. We want you to like be able to open it on a Friday night with friends. We don't want it to like sit in your cellar in some like enclosed capsule waiting for the perfect moment that may never come. But okay. So before Zach jumps in, I know he has, I just want to follow up on one question you said, which is like, you you know, there's a formula, right? Okay. 
So our listeners probably don't. So what is that formula? So uh, breaking it down into like very simple and quick terms. So it's it comes down to ripeness, right? And what your definition of ripeness is. And this this goes back to kind of our first two points on like deliciousness and ageability. So um, high scoring wines in general tend to be, you know, overripe, I would say. So that's, you know, basically hanging your fruit out there until it's raisined. You bring it in, it's a lot of time on skin. So you make this like very high extract, extremely concentrated, almost like port-like consistency. And then you throw a lot of new oak at it. So, I mean, anyone can go and buy a, you know, thousand or 1200 euro new barrel. And, you know, so it's a long hang time on the vines. It's a lot of time on skins. And then it's a lot of new wood. What, and why is that? That that's that's Parker and spe- Spectator and whatever's palette. That's basically. right, that's exactly right. And so, and there are you know companies out there that will come in and help you know they'll consult and say if you want to make a hundred point wine, this is what they all have in common, and they will go through it and they will help you make it. And like those services are available, and we see it with with a lot of winemaking consultants too. I mean, what really gets me is you like you know you Adam you know you make your fortune here, you go out and you build yourself like a you know fifty million dollar winery, you buy all this property. You do all this stuff to make this place beautiful and unique, and then you hire the same consulting winemaker that is doing 27 other brands to make the wine exactly the same as theirs. Like, why would you do something that's like crazy, that? Yeah. But that's what happens a lot in the Valley. So, I mean, maybe it's the fact that things are so competitive and that some of these newer brands feel they need a 99 or 100 point score just to break into the market. I don't know. I've never really been in that world or played in that sandbox, thankfully. Yeah. So I was going to say this, this prompted a question that was actually different than the one I was going to ask before. So uh, a good interruption, Adam. Um, but I think the, <laughs> I, I think what that make what that, uh, the question that raises to me is it actually kind of comes back to what Adam was saying at the beginning, which is about the sort of question of the uh, relevance of Napa. And, and it's interesting to me because I think one of the, one of the really uh, fascinating bifurcations that happens, um, you know, when I visit or that, that I get sometimes when tasting wines from Napa is you get, um, you know, you get the two sides of the coin, right? You get the wineries like Chateau Montalena and others that are, you know, still making very, you know, clearly Napa wine and, and Napa is a warm place and a place where you can get your grapes ripe and, and you don't have to go anywhere near the extreme that some of the, uh, you know, the, the wines that you're talking about that chase points or chase scores are going to, but, but still, a, it's still kind of a hallmark of the, of the region. Um, but, but it's balanced with, you know, with structure and acidity and, and the wines are, are, you know, sort of, um, in balance and, and that is the, the side of Napa that I really enjoy. Um, and then of course there's the, there's the other side, which is the, you know, well, there's the two other sides, I guess there's the really high score expensive wine that, uh, like Adam, I don't ever get to try. Um, and Never. then there's the, like, there's sort of the other, like, let's say really ripe, but maybe not, um, maybe that ripeness doesn't come totally naturally. There could be some additions to wines. Um, that definitely happens too. Um, and, and what I'm wondering is, you know, for you guys, you're making a, a sort of a more honest representation of the place, but the reality of making wine in Napa is it's expensive. And, and, you know, you're talking about wanting the wine to be something that people drink, but for a lot of our listeners, even a, you know, even a, a relatively a sort of reasonably priced wine in the Napa price scale is still a very expensive wine for them. So, you know, how, how do you kind of address this idea of, you know, yeah, you're not pricing your wine uh, anywhere near first growth of Bordeaux or Colt Napa wines, but, but there's still for a lot of people, that's an indulgence, whether that's at a restaurant or, or even buying it at a shop, you know, like how do you kind of try to connect to a, a generation that maybe isn't buying a lot of $60, $70 bottles of wine? So uh, you're right. We do have expensive Cabernet and our, our Chardonnay, you know, retails in the 50 to $60 bottle range, not uh, ex- inexpensive by any stretch. Uh, what a lot of people don't know is we also make Riesling. Uh, we also make Zinfandel. 
Why? Because we like to drink them. There's no money in either of them. <laughs> but what I will tell you is that we spend just as much time on that bottle of Riesling that I think retails for like 25 bucks. Again, not um, not inexpensive, but within the grasp of most people. And it's a, it's a great introduction to the brand. I mean, again, I really do spend just as much time on that Riesling, making it awesome, knowing that for a lot of people, that may be the first and only introduction to, yeah, to Montalena. And, you know, maybe, you know, 10, 20 years from now, they're willing to, to trade up and try something else. And that, that that's a real mindset shift. And I've, it's really dawned on me probably in the last year, year and a half, where the rest of the Valley chases, you know, wealthy collectors. They chase people with unlimited expense accounts. And like, those people are great. And like, we love them having them as customers and we have yeah. plenty of them. But the reality is when, you know, any of you guys come to visit us, you're going to see a whole diverse group of people uh, who walk onto, you know, our little property in Calistoga. And I mean, there will be a 25 year old Instagrammer who, you know, is out visiting her parents and she's coming up to take a picture of herself in the castle. And, you know, we can pour Riesling for her or, if, you know, since she's at the winery, we actually make like a little bit of Sauvignon Blanc also, you know, both of which are killer, um, but they don't get out of the market much. I think um, the Riesling's definitely in in New York. So it's, it's that kind of perspective, understanding that if we can, you know, if we can meet you, if you're willing to try our wine and you like it, you know, there will be a common thread through every, bottle we make that just has a little bit of like the monolana character and the monolana values. And if it's something that resonates with you, then hopefully you're more likely to try something else we make in the future. All right. So we got you here. So <clears throat> let's get away from the larger questions about Napa. And <clears throat> because we have a winemaker, let's get into winemaking questions. Sounds great. All right. So what I'm really curious about is every time I go to wineries with other people, there's a, there's a few questions everyone seems to ask and then they seem to like make large judgment calls about wine. We've talked about this before yeah. about a winemaker or their practices based on those questions. So first I'm curious what you think those questions are, because I'm sure you get the pass a lot. And then I'd love to tell you what I think the questions are as well. So what are some questions that you feel like <clears throat> writers like us or sommeliers or just big wine people will ask you about your winemaking practices that you can tell they're making a judgment call based on. Yeah. I think people just in general, they want to paint things in black and white. Right. Right. I think it makes sense in our lizard brains, but the reality is life <laughs> is never rarely black and white. And um, what I find, and I'll give you the questions in a second, but I also find that when people ask these rarely, do they understand the implications of the answer? Now that's not everyone, but I think, there are some people who like, well, this is a, a pertinent question I should ask, but I don't really know how to interpret it. So right. we, get, we get a lot of questions about, you know, organic, biodynamic, uh, get a lot of questions about quote unquote natural wine. Um, we get a lot of questions about, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, vineyard practices, the, you know, for uh, pesticides, fertilizers. I mean, again, all really good questions, but very rarely can they be answered in with like a single soundbite. I mean, so many times I'm like, well, it depends. Right. And that's how most things are in life. So it's usually somewhere around there and they do tend to be topical. I don't get them from Psalms as much. Interesting. Um, Psalms usually ask a completely different set of questions. What but do they they ask, what do you ask? They ask like really esoteric questions, like ones that I'm like, I don't know how that, why you even care about this. You know, they're asking for like the oxygen transfer rate on my corks. And I'm just like, what's like, what, why does that matter? So that's usually where those come from. So one of the questions that oh, you and I talked about that I'm curious mm -hmm. for you to answer uh, is one of the questions I've heard a lot of people ask recently that's sort of on trend is 
do you spontaneously ferment? Right. And so for people who don't understand what that means, basically what someone's asking is, do you take yeast that was bought from somewhere and add it to the juice and let the yeast do its thing, which is basically how everyone makes beer, yep. right? Um, and how we make liquor. Or do you crush the grapes and basically walk away and let yeast, which ultimately will come into the juice, come in and make wine? And what I've found is like people make judgment calls one way or the other. And at least as of right now, it seems that there is a trend among most, a lot of people who are mostly wine writers, skewing, et cetera, that spontaneous is by far better. So I'm curious, like, what your reaction is, because your answer to me when, when you gave it to me at lunch a few months ago was like, huh, that's totally right. And I don't think anyone realizes. No, that's true. And I do remember that that being a very a good question. And rarely do you have enough time to, like, expound upon it. So I'll, I'll certainly endeavor to be brief. So I think, I think it comes down to, again, it, it comes down to perspective, right? And so even the... First off, there's no such thing as a spontaneous ferment. So it's, it's the real term should be an ambient ferment. So uh, people talk about all these vineyard yeasts coming out of, you know, on your fruit and they're going to ferment your wine. The reality is like, and this is science, all of uh, those vineyard yeasts, you know, they're adapted to live outside. They're adapted to live in the sunlight with oxygen. You put them into a tank in, in a high osmotic tank, so lots of sugar and it's like cold in there and then it gets hot. They all die before you get to like 1% alcohol. So Saccharomyces cerevisiae is the only yeast out there that will finish a ferment. So even if you don't add any yeast in your tank, um, whatever you were using before, before you stopped adding, um, or what your neighbor is using next door or whatever happens to be wafting through the air will get into your tank and, and will finish your ferment that way. So the whole concept of like vineyard yeast and these like spontaneous, like, like the magical yeast fairies come in and finish your ferment. Like it's just, it's a complete fallacy. So, um, but that being said, I know, you know, and this comes back to like, kind of like that site specificity question. You know, if you've got a really amazing growing site, and that's very unique. And I'd say there's probably like even in Napa, maybe like one to three percent of all the vineyard land in Napa, I would say is like really super special. I mean, it's all great. But in terms of being unique, maybe one to three percent by um, by area. Um, if you've got that, like that's what you want to show. You want to show the unique intricacies of that growing site that can't be copied elsewhere. If you're growing in some other place where your vineyard is the same as your neighbor's, which is the same as the guy down the street. Well, then maybe, you know, the whole spontaneous ferment where some of the vineyard yeast do come in and they create a little bit of VA or volatile acidity or some other weird microbial aroma or flavor compound, maybe that helps you differentiate your wine. And so that comes down to that whole like, you know, wine of place versus wine of effort. And so I think there are a lot of people out there who you may have a good growing site, but it's not incredibly unique. And so some of these techniques that they espouse, you know, the spontaneous ferment or whatever helps differentiate them in the market and maybe makes what would have been a relatively simple and quote unquote ordinary wine, not that that's bad, but it makes it a little bit more unique. And just to like, just to like tell your, your listeners, like all of those yeasts that are for sale, I mean, like the ones we use, these were all, these are all like isolated from certain areas to start off with. So for Chardonnay, we use Montrachet. So, which was isolated from ferments in Montrachet in Burgundy, right? And all it's been done and now it's been, it's been, you know, literally freeze dried. That's it. And the reason we use it is because it's an incredibly clean and transparent fermenter. It doesn't add any flavor complexity. It doesn't add any aroma. It's actually a very finicky and difficult to work with yeast, but it, it's like the vintage and the vineyard always shine through beautifully, which is why we use it. 
So I would say like from a transparency sake, I mean, wine is an intermediate step between juice and vinegar, right? Right. So like being completely hands off and like dumping your, your fruit into a clay amphora and burying it in the grounds. I mean, you can say that is the ultimate hands off, but what you're going to end up with on the other side, it may be interesting. Is it going to be delicious? I don't know. Is it going to be indicative of the site where it was grown? Probably not, but it'll be something. Interesting. I have a I have a question on, on two things you said about yeast because um, I find this fascinating, um, and uh, and and one is you know I think one thing that I've heard from a lot of winemakers is that while I think what you're saying is is definitely is definitely true that this sort of belief that like yeast in the vineyard are somehow you know carrying fermentation all the way through from start to finish is obviously not true, um, you know as you said those yeasts can really not survive in a in a alcohol a high alcohol environment or even a very low alcohol environment, um, but isn't there something about, you know, sort of, and maybe this depends more on the strain of yeast you choose to inoculate with versus like the uh, generalization. But, but one of the things that I've heard is that people prefer using ambient yeast because it tends to produce a slower fermentation. Um, Obviously there's risks that come with that, things like stuck fermentation, but that you're not necessarily racing through primary fermentation um, as fast as you will with at least certain strains of commercial yeast. And obviously, you know, what you choose as a winery is is hugely um, impactful on that. But, but it's not, I don't think it's necessarily the case that um, that there are that there are not advantages to um, to a more ambient ferment. Um, of course, that that requires a degree of um, you know both willingness on the winemaker's part to take chances, and and you have to I think to do it well, you have to be you know pretty diligent about uh, sterilization and cleanliness and all that, and and paying attention to what's happening in your tanks. So question, that's that's my first question, and second one is um, Zach always has <laughs> Well, you know, I, I it's it's just the nature of the beast with me. Um, the other one I was going to ask is, um, you know, it's really fascinating what you're saying about sort of this idea that. Um, you know, you pick the Montrachet yeast for Chardonnay um, for its transparency, because I think this is actually a really important point, too, that people don't understand, is that yeast can have hugely um, impactful uh, role to play in the flavor, the finished flavor of a, of a wine. We think of yeast as just often we think of something as a, something that just does a job for us. It converts, you know, sugar into alcohol. But obviously, um, certain strains ha- can ha- add tremendous amounts of flavor. And, and can you maybe just explain that uh, in a little more detail for our listeners? Sure. So to your first question, um, you know, there are certainly, and maybe we can tee off on both at the same time. So yeah, there's certainly commercial yeasts out there that are selected for certain characteristics. Uh, some of them are selected to be faster fermenters. Some of them are selected to, um, you know, they can have certain, you know, side chain activities that help release certain aromatics. I mean, there are all different kinds of things out there. Uh, when it comes to not inoculating to get a slower ferment, that isn't, it seems like it would make logical sense, but it's not necessarily the case. Because if you think about it, uh, the yeast that are, it tends to be like the strongest, most robust yeast that tend to stick around the longest in a winery. So, I mean, if you guys built, again, you know, Adam Teeter winery and you've never fermented anything in there ever, then, you know, possibly you could end up with, You'll, Saccharomyces will certainly finish your ferment where it comes from. It's going to be in the air somewhere. And yeah, it may take a little longer to get established, but once you've fermented in there once, um, that's going to be your, your house strain for life. And so let's say we're talking about Montalena, you know, it's a 130 year old building. Wine's been made there for a really long time. And it's, and it's, I'm sure at some point somebody probably used like one of those like super macho strains that just like, you know, the brewers use to get up to like the super high ABV, uh, beers. And so, 
I'm sure that yeast is is in our building. And if we were to not inoculate with Montrachet or something else, I'm sure that matcha yeast would be the first one that would move into that Chardonnay and we would have a rocket ship of a ferment that would get through. Uh, so does that make sense, Zach? It does. Yeah. And then um, your second question, we were talking about individual yeast selection or did I get it on it? Did I get through it enough? I think you kind of addressed it, you know, this right. idea that obviously there are a lot of, you know, when you are selecting um, commercial strains of yeast or, or cultured strains of yeast that that some people are, are selecting for not just the ability to ferment quickly, but maybe for um, for flavor or aromatic um, additions to the wine that the, the yeast strains provide. And, and really quickly, because I'm going to follow up on this with one last one. Do you find that um, to some extent, I, I, when I, some of the stuff I've read recently seems to show that some of the bacteria that are used for malolactic fermentation can have a similar kind of um, there can be differing impacts on the sort of finished flavor. Uh, is that something that you've had any experience with? And do you do you add um, do you inoculate with uh, bacteria for ML, which I'm assuming you take um, the Chardonnay through? Uh, so the Chardonnay, all of our whites are non-ML. So actually, oh. the, the challenge is keeping them from going through ML, <laughs> which which we do pretty effectively. Uh, the reds obviously all go through ML. It's pretty rare to find a non-ML red these days. I know Heights Martha's Vineyard used to be that way. I'm not 100% sure if it still is. But absolutely, I mean, bacteria definitely can have an impact on flavor. A lot of that happens to, um, a lot of that comes from certain like chemical precursors in the wine. So we're all familiar with malolactic and how it can make the wine, you know, can give you diacetyl which is, you know, very buttery. We're all very familiar and kind of like the, the soft Chardonnay style, the high butter Chardonnay that you see coming out of California a lot, um, which is not ours, obviously. Um, but, you know, again, we're, we're in that camp where uh, for us, it's again, we want a clean, steady fermenter with very little to no sensory impact on, uh, in our ML strains. And so, you know, we select one. And uh, before um, malolactic bacteria were, you know, commercially available in kind of like a freeze-dried form, um, we literally, we have, if you come visit the winery, we have a whole series of these old untoasted American oak uprights. And the reason they're there is because the malolactic bacteria, you know, burrow in them and kind of colonize it. And once we had a strain in there that we liked, we would then start moving more of our wine through those tanks and the wines would just, you know, fly through ML. Like that's, that's pretty old school technology and that's how things were done for a really long time. But there's still an element of risk there, right? Because there are other bacteria that can live in there too. So it really comes down to, you know, where are you getting your flavor diversity and interest from? Like, are you getting it from your vineyard? Are you getting it from your site? And if so, it takes a lot of work. It's actually, it's counterintuitive. You think like, oh, I'm going to be so hands-off and that's really going to, you know, express this really amazing place and the vintage when the reality is that you have to work really hard and be very specific and make good decisions, not only on the farming side, but also in the winery to be able to express that. And, um, so we're, we're very, very careful about what we choose to do. And, you know, I kind of like to say like, we work very, very hard to make ourselves disappear. Interesting. So, yeah, so like it's the idea that if you let some of these sort of bad bacteria come into the wine, even if they happen to live in the same area, you're actually not expressing the site as well as if you work hard to keep them out. Absolutely. 100%. So one last question for you. Um, we've got a lot of people becoming winemakers now, yeah. right? So celebrities, Psalms. My dad, maybe he's, he's retired. <laughs> so who knows? And I think a lot of people go into it because they think it, they can do it. Yeah. Like we're we're all into wine, so we think, oh well, that's a general 
next step is like, I'm really into wine or I, you know, I've achieved this level of certification in WSET or whatever it is, and I can make wine as well. What do you think the biggest misconception is with, with that idea? I think that, I think most people picture us sitting around drinking wine all day and, you know, blending with pipettes. And that's probably, you know, a 10th of a percent of the job Uh, to be really good at this, you know, in this line of work. And I'm not saying I'm that good at it, but first off, you have to have like a healthy sense of humility and a healthy sense of curiosity. If you don't have either of those two, you're not going to move forward. So you can't come in with any preconceived notions. The second thing is that there's this fallacy that it's like that, that art drives everything. So, I mean, the art side is very, very important. Um, but it's, you have to understand like where the art may give you the creativity and the curiosity to come up with things, the science side and the farming side, those are very, very critical to being able to then take that, the genesis of that idea and put it into practice. So, um, you know, probably 10 to 20% of all of our lots at Montalena are in some sort of R and D every year. Like people are shocked to hear that. They think we just like make the same recipe every year. But we come up with, well, we come up with ideas, you know, it's not the good idea fairy, like, wouldn't it be cool if, but we, we're trying to make the wine better. And we're like, here's a way we could do that. Maybe it's, you know, changing how we irrigate on a certain block, or maybe it's how we're changing fermentation temperature or something like that, or how we macerate cap management, all these different ideas. But you have, so you have to have the artistic side to understand, you know, the possibilities. But if you don't know the science behind it, if you don't know like how to answer why and how to gauge success, you're really never going to blaze forward. You make, make a great wine in an easy vintage, but as soon as things start getting difficult and something starts going sideways, it's really tough to recover. Interesting. Matt, this was really awesome. Thank you so much for joining the no, podcast my pleasure. this week. Um, Zach, uh, another great conversation. Um, to everyone, thank you so much for listening, and we will see you back here next week. Sounds great. Thanks for listening to Vine Pair. We'd love to hear what you think. Feel free to drop us a line at podcast at vinepair.com. And if you really love the show, we'd love if you rate it and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Reviews and ratings really help other people discover the show. Now for the credits. VinePair is recorded in New York City at VinePair headquarters and in Seattle, Washington at Cloud Studios. Our engineer is Nick Patry, and the show is produced by Zach Joal and me. Our show logo was designed by Daniel Gridberg. Special thanks as well to the entire VinePair staff, including but not limited to my co-founder, Josh Mallon, and our editor-in-chief, Emily Saladino. Thanks so much for listening, and see you next week.